You're listening to True Vine Church Community Podcast. We hope this message sparks and sustains revival with your relationship with Jesus. For more information about True Vine, visit truevinephiladelphia.com. We've been looking at the story of the Bible. We looked at what the Bible is, and it is the, the truth. It is true, it is inspired, and it's authoritative in our lives. And then we moved into the creation story in which we learned that God created the universe through Jesus. Amen? Amen. And he did that out of nothing. And then um, we looked at the image of God and discovered together just what that looks like and how that affects every part of who we are as individuals and how that looks, how that either adhering to it or dismissing it affects us and society. We, we looked at that, and then today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And I'll just say that from the, from the get-go, I, I feel like the Lord was setting us up for, to, to learn about his tenderness in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, oftentimes, when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we're, we're looking to find who to blame. And we're looking to find, just to understand, you know, Lord, why, why would you treat me, uh, hold me responsible for something I didn't do that they did? That's, that's how we approached it. But today, I want to uh, draw us away from that and look at um, the tenderness of God in the passage. But we can't get there without talking about the devastating blow. And that is uh, that there was, here in, in the beginning of this passage in Genesis 3 verse 1, we see that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We already start to, that word crafty, that word is never associated with anything positive in the Bible. It's always negative. Sorry for you who are crafty in this room in a good way. <laughs> Those of you who do arts and crafts, this is not the kind of craftiness that, uh, that the serpent was part of. He wasn't into arts and crafts. He was into uh, moving and initiating an anti-God and anti-human effort. That's the kind of craftiness that he was into. So let's read Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It says here, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There is an anti-God and anti-human effort that we're introduced to right in the get-go from uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. We saw the creation was good. 
When God made man, he said it was very good. He looked at all of it and said it was very good. And the, the ending passages, uh, we see that one of the ways that the man was introduced or how you knew the state of their being was good and whole and peace and shalom, it was like they were naked and they were unashamed. And so then, the, then we get a, an abrupt introduction to the serpent, uh, and we get to understand who the serpent is as the Bible reveals it. So in Revelation 12, we see that he is the, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. So even while, while Jesus um, is speaking to the churches and giving revelation, he, he goes back to Genesis chapter 3. It says, this old serpent, this ancient serpent, he is called Satan. He is called the devil. We see that this character who is anti-God and anti-human um, is Satan, the devil, the accuser of the brethren and the deceiver. That is who he is. In Isaiah 14, we see that he's, he's fallen. It says in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the, fear, in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This, this anti-God effort had, had happened sometime in between the, the creation of all things and the creation of man. And this existence of evil comes and, and has a, a distinguishing role in the life of those who bear the image of God. And we know him to be the deceiver and we know him to be the accuser. In Ezekiel 28, 14 through 17, uh, we, in Isaiah, we saw that he wants to ascend high above God. He wants to be, uh, I, want, I will make myself like the most high God. There's a pride about this character. And in Ezekiel 28, 14 through 17, he says, this is the Lord speaking, uh, and he transitions from a man speaking to the man, to what's behind the man. And he says, you were anointed guardian cherub. What man was anointed guardian cherub? There wasn't. So he's speaking to Satan. He says, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you. As, profane, as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So this anti-God and anti-human effort was amounted by this prideful, uh, usurping being. He wants to usurp the authority of God, wants to be like the most high God. And so the way that he comes into the picture to get at God is to start messing with those who reflect the image of God. So 
There is an anti-God and anti-human effort. And one of the things, two things I learned about the word anti. Anti could either mean against. How many of you have heard that it's against? But anti can also mean seeking to replace. So not only is he against, he's seeking to replace. And we see that his efforts in heaven were not successful. Because the moment that sin was found in him, he was cast down. There is no, there is, you can be against God, but you will not replace God is what God is saying, right? Uh, in the story of this, this Satan, uh, the serpent that, that, that we see here in Genesis 3. And, but the thing is, is that he changes, focuses his attention. I can't usurp God's throne. I can't replace him. So I'm going to go after the very treasured thing that God has made in his image. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 that our first parents, they unfortunately chose into the, God, the anti-God and human effort. How did they do that? Well, there was a method. There was a method of the enemy in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. He, uh, he begins his interaction with the woman. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in a garden? Three things that you and I should know that has not changed about the enemy from the beginning to now is that the first thing he's going to do is going to question God's word. He's going he's gonna to sow some seeds of doubt in you and me to bring a wedge between uh, the trustworthiness of God, the truthfulness of, of the word of God. He's going to come between you and me uh, and, and sow seeds uh, about the uh, trustworthiness of God, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of God, and even the authority of the word of God. That's what he comes. Because... I know for a lot of us, we're like, why were they so susceptible to the enemy? Why were they so foolish? Well, it says that he was crafty for a reason. He didn't come brazen and guns blazing. Reject your God. That's not how he came. He came with suggestions and subtleties. And in the suggestions and the subtleties, we see that he brings people to question the word of God. Did God actually say... Secondly, we see that he convinced them that God was withholding something good from them. Verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. God is withholding something from you, is what he wants to convince us to believe. So not only are we questioning, led to question God's word, he wants to convince us that God is withholding something good from us, and we know that's a lie because God said everything was good. It was good. What they had is all they needed. When it came to their provisions, their sustenance, the things that they enjoyed together, what they had is what they needed. When it came to relationship with God, what they had is what they needed. When it came to being made in the likeness of God, what they had is what they needed. But he came, came to convince them that God was withholding something good. And then finally, he minimizes the consequences, always. Oh, it ain't nothing. Nothing's going to happen. You, you go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Come on. Just, just bite. He says, you 
will not die. And at the end of verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And so then, the method leads to a choice that the woman has to make. And we see the movement from sight to, to, to bite. I didn't even plan that. From sight to bite. Look at that. Bars. <laughs> In Genesis 3, verse 6, he says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So say, saw. What is the first thing she, she did? She saw. She saw the fruit. She knew that this was off limits, but the crafty serpent drew her attention to this. He would draw you to what is prohibited. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a light to the eyes, say desired. She began to desire it. She said that it's desirable to make me wise. When I, I see this fruit, I believe the voice of the serpent that says if I eat, uh, I will be wise. I will know good and I will know evil. Um, and so she desired this very thing. It was desirable. Then she took, say took. She took of its fruit. So from sight to bite, you see it. You desire it, you take it, you eat it. And as kind as she was, she shared it and she gave some. So saw, she saw, she desired, she desired it, she took it, she ate it, and she gave it. Again, that one command was enough for her to say, this is, this is prohibited. But when you question God's word, and you question his character and you convince he's really not that good. And the consequences are minimized. Like nothing really is going to happen. Then it's, you could see how, how she went from knowing the command of the Lord to violating the command of the Lord. And this knowing the command of the Lord and violating the command of the Lord leads to the consequences. Say Consequences. So the first consequence we see are negative emotions. If you read Genesis 3, verses 7 through 10, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? What we begin to see is the negative emotions like fear and shame and insecurity start to immediately creep in to the creation of God. Whenever fellowship is broken, all of these things exist. Whenever a proper relationship or good relationship, because that's, that's the intent of the enemy. It's not just to, for you to make a decision to violate the command of the Lord in isolation. It's for you to make the decision away from God. And what you and I need to know is that whenever we sin against the Lord, we're declaring something about God. And that is offensive. 
When we sin, we're declaring, You're, you don't give me what I need. You don't provide what I want. You don't care about my situation. All of these are false accusations on God. And sin has in its core this very thing. You say and you believe the wrong thing about God. And you bring accusations to God. So I need to hide. I'm ashamed. What kind of shame do I have? I have a kind of shame Adam and Eve has. The kind of shame that causes them to cover up. They're wearing, and we today cover up, wearing designer fig leaves by Louis Vuitton. You know, none of us here are wearing Louis Vuitton, but you know what I'm saying. That's a lyric from uh, Lecrae. Uh, I thought that always stuck with me. It's like the fact that we're wearing clothes today is evidence that there was a fall. The fact that you feel ashamed if you walked around. It's not a uh, community construct. You, you feel ashamed unless you're in a nudist colony. I don't know. Then, then there's none of that. I don't know how they do that and not feel ashamed. I think they have to do a lot to get to that point. Anyways, bring it back. Shame that causes us to cover up and shame that causes us to hide from God. They hid from the Lord in verse 7. The next thing we see is that they have fear. Fear that causes them to run away from God. They hear God coming in and walking into their midst and they feel afraid. It's like, I can't come before you like this. And God's like, I made you to be in a relationship with me. What's wrong? You know? So they, 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 they feel shame. They feel fear. And they have an insecurity that causes strains in relationships with others. These negative emotions were immediate. The moment, you know, you and I know, we're doing something we're not supposed to. Somebody walks into the room, you're like, you do the, I got caught stutter. <laughs> am I wrong or am I right? Yeah, we do it all the time. Like, oh, I'm not supposed, or, you know, at work, if you're not supposed to be on your phone, your supervisor comes by, you're like, you know, quickly. The moment you break a command, the moment these negative emotions start arising up, you don't want to get caught. Why? Because you don't want the consequences. But the consequences will always come. They might be minimized in the moment of temptation, but the, when they're realized, you're going to feel it, and you're going to feel it deep. You're going to feel it strong, and you're going to feel it long if the Lord doesn't intervene. So, we have negative emotions coming into our interview, shame, fear, and insecurity, which is opposite of what they felt. It says that they were naked and they were unashamed. Like this was uh, the, the category of life that they lived in, butt naked and unashamed, exposed, no worries. It was evidence of the peace that they had inside their hearts and their minds. It was evidence of the kind of relationship that they had with God. They were living in their purpose. They were living as image bearers of God. And the moment that they broke communion and fellowship with God by breaking his law is when everything, all these negative feelings started coming in. The next thing we see is that we have curses, say curses. We're going to read Genesis 3, 14 through 19, and it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and a woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the, cur- the, the, the curses begin to come. He addresses the serpent first, he addresses Eve next, and he addresses Adam Finally, in that. And I'm not going to go in the order of how God says it, but I'll just reference them. It says in uh, Genesis 3.17 that the ground was cursed. Cursed is the ground. So creation is now in corruption. Creation is now in, involved or included in the cycle of life and death. In the cycle of beginning and deterioration. The creation is corrupt. Work is hard. How many of you are like, yes, work is hard. It says in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Toilsome work. Work is hard. One of the things you need to know, work is not part of the curse. Work was part of the purpose in the beginning. They were to rule and subdue. He put Adam in the garden to work the garden. So work was how they expanded the kingdom and expanded the earth. They, the goal was to, as you f- multiply and are fruitful, that you would expand Eden into all of the earth. That was the goal. But now all of that is going to be difficult. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Work will be hard. The next thing we see is that pain, uh, there's going to be pain. There's going to be pain in work. There's going to be pain in childbearing. The woman is told, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The next thing we we see here too is that there's going to be a strained relationship between the husband and the wife. There's always going to be this tendency to want to rule over one another or circumvent one another. That's part of the curse. The last thing we see, or the next thing we see, is that there's physical death. He says to Adam, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so with death comes everything with it. Everything that that leads to death. Everything that works towards death. So things like disease. Things like the the deterioration of your body. The the death of cells and all of that. And disasters that happen in in our world. All of these came as a result of this choice. It's a curse. The last thing we see is separation. Say separation. In 
Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, we see, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's separation. Separation from the thing that would keep them in that state forever. Should they have been fallen, having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think the logic is, is that they, if they ate of the tree of life, they would be in that state forever. And there would be no redemption. There would be no restoration. I think that's what the Lord is getting at in that moment. So these are the, the, the two things that, that come as consequence of their choice. Negative emotions and curses. And I'm going to reference some other things that are not specifically there in Genesis chapter 3. So we're just going to go through them quickly. If you want to snap a picture of that, you can Go for it. The, the next thing we see is that there's spiritual death. That though we are born into this world, though we are a living body with mind and heart and breath in our lungs and exhaling in all systems of the body, going and causing growth, though there is life, we're not truly alive. There's death that we are in. There's a death that we're in. It's called a spiritual death. In Ephesians 2.1, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Sin brings death. And death has its way with us all. The first way it has its way with us is spiritually. We're dead to God. Not that God feels like I'm done with y'all. That's not what I'm saying, dead to God. What I'm saying is we have nothing that connects us to God. There's a death in our spirit. The next thing we see, remember how I said this was an anti-God and anti-man effort that both Adam and Eve chose into. So as part of the the result or the consequence of that is that we've abdicated authority. We've given, we've gone from ruling and subduing the earth to being a follower of the prince of the power of the air. Genesis 1.28, this is what God blessed us to be like. God blessed them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. But then this is how we're described in Ephesians 2 verse 2. That we're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we've abdicated our authority. So though the enemy was not successful with God, he was against God, but he can't, couldn't replace God. He was successful in mankind and that he was against us and replaced us. Replaced our authority. And now all of creation and all of humanity is subject to corruption. Part of the corruption that happens is the, the, the sinful inclinations that we have or, or sin's mastery. At one point, we had good, when we, there was good relationship with the Lord. What mastered us was the context of that relationship. 
outside of that relationship, what masters us or what threatens us day in and day out, day in and day out is this external thing called sin. It's not only external, it's also internal. It's external in this way. When God was talking to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, he said to Cain, listen, you will be accepted if you do good. But then he says to him, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Every one of us, whether we're equipped or not, are thrown into a world where we must learn to master sin or sin will master us. That's the world that we live in. You have no choice in that matter. You can believe that man is inherently good. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the the reality is, is that we're all born into this world where we're going to face this external pressure to sin against God and to sin against others. So there's an external pressure. Romans 6, 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's the goal of sin. You think you could just like snuggle up to it and enjoy it for a little bit. That John is just going to take you over to the point where you obsess, to the point where you're constantly desiring, and to the point where you're just so beaten by it that you just give up. All sin is that way. There's also that internal where sin, we have that external pressure, but there's also like reality is I want that. That's the kind of thing that lives in us. That, oh, I want that. So Satan only has the power of suggestion. You're like, I wanted that anyways. So I'm going to go after it. The Bible calls this the flesh. Say the flesh. The flesh is different than the body. There's two words. I think Pastor Jim mentioned this several weeks ago, a couple weeks ago and other times. That the flesh, this body that we live in is is a soma. The Greek word is soma. And the flesh that the Bible is talking about, that is the internal inclination to sin, is sarks. So sarks with an X, you know. X, don't do it. That's not what you want to be part of. Soma, it's like, ah, oh, that's good. God created that. It's, 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 it's doing well. But sarks is, we don't, we don't want that. That's the inward inclination or inward bent towards sin. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 5, 17 not going to be up there. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. But the thing is, and in Galatians 5, just, I think it's 19 or so, it says that the deeds of the flesh are obvious. That it's sexual immorality, it's drunkenness, it's anger, it's rage. All the things that you know are bad, that's what the, the, the flesh is inclined to do. So it messes not only with your desires, it also messes with your attitudes. So that's what's trying to have mastery over us. And that is a consequences, a consequence of the fall. Lastly, what I want you to know, the big idea when it comes to sin and the consequences is that we share, all of us, when you're born into this world, you share in Adam's sin. He's, they were meant, believe it or not, 
accept it or not, this is the reality. They were meant to be representatives of all of humanity. Which, if we bring it down to our own families, you should know that if Adam and Eve's choices affected all these generations of people, what makes you think your choices are not going to affect generations of people? This is how God made it to be. It's how he created. Adam and Eve were representative of all of us. And we, because of them, share in their sin. Whether by, by nature or inclination in our hearts, or uh, whether by choice or by inclination. <laughs> we, we make choices to sin against the Lord. Amen? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why did death spread to all men? Because all sinned. We all sinned. We all participated in that. Now, a lot of times we come to the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, and we want to play the same game that Adam and Eve and the serpent played, right? When God was calling them to task, they immediately blame shifted. Shifting the blame. Hey, serpent, or hey, Eve, or Adam, why'd you do this? The woman gave me something to eat. Hey, woman, why did you do this? The serpent told me to do this. You know, and there was no, like, hey, serpent, why did you do this? It immediately went to the curse, to the serpent. Cursed are you above all animals of the field. And so, a lot of times we approach Genesis chapter 3 with the mentality of, like, man, I'm looking who to blame. I'm looking who's responsible. And I feel some type of way, God, that you would hold me responsible for their choices. And the reality is that, that you're missing the point. You're missing the point because this event sets off a whole event, a whole story of God's love unfolding to all of humanity. I don't know what I, one question is, why didn't you just destroy them and start all over? And the answer I think is his image was too valuable. The image of God in mankind was too valuable to just destroy and discard. He could have done it. He could have done it as he did in Genesis chapter 6 when he said, I'm done with all of y'all. But what did he do? He saved the eight. He saved the eight. Why? Because the image of God was powerful and valuable in all of us. And so he desired to redeem it. And I believe that the story unfolds because of what he speaks to Eve. But before we get there, I want you to see the tenderness of God in this moment. The, the, the fact that he feels the brokenness of the relationship. He feels the weight of broken relationship and fellowship. Right here in verse 9. After they made their decision, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they began to cover themselves. The Lord did what he did every other day. He was coming for fellowship. Now you tell me, God who is all-knowing and who sees all things, did he not know that they sinned? Absolutely. But what did he come after? He came after them for fellowship. He wants relationship. 
He's like, this is, this is what I live for each day. I, I'm coming to hang with my image bearers. I'm coming to do life with them. I'm coming to just catch up, see how they're doing, what they did, you know, what, they, what, what are they discovering? How are they experiencing one another as husband and wife? God is coming to be all up in that mix. He wants that good fellowship. So his response of, or his, his question of where are you is a response of his brokenness. It's like, as an article that we posted, I posted on um, the Church Center app. You should read it. It's called The Tenderness of God. As it propose, uh, uh, proposes, it says that, that when God says, where are you, he was more saying, I miss you. I miss you. Like we... We were supposed to have this date. We're, we're, we're supposed to all sit at this table and enjoy time together and enjoy fellowship. And you left me here hanging. You left me here. Where are you? I miss you. I want you. I, I, this, I was, we were made for this. This is the kind of thing I, I want. Then this next question, as Adam responds to that question in verse 10, Verse 9 says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And what does the Lord say? Verse 11, he says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you? Who told you? He's broken by the broken fellowship. It's like, who, who told you? You're supposed to be living based on what I have said about you. You're supposed to be living out of what I think about you and how I feel about you. Who is telling you that you are naked? And we could bring it to this day. Who's telling you that you're worthless? Who's telling you that you won't amount to anything? Who's telling you that your life will never be different? Who's telling you that you are gay? Who's telling you that you are the, the trauma that you experience, that you're going to be stuck here and that you're doomed to repeat every mistake that your parents have made? Who told you? He's broken. He's broken by this, this broken fellowship. God is always asking that question because Jesus told us something very dear. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So if God's word doesn't have a place in your life, you're going to want, you're going to, he's going to have to ask you this question a lot. Who told you? Where are you getting your conclusions from? How? This is not my heart. This is not what I made you for. Who told you? See the tenderness of God in this? He comes looking for fellowship. He's broken by the fact that their fellowship is broken. The next thing he does in Genesis chapter 3.15 when he's talking to the, the, uh, the serpent, he says to, to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's, who's the first one that ate? 
Eve. But he still deems her essential for the salvation of the world. Though she ate, she is going to be redeemed. Why? Because from her is going to come the deliverer. From her is going to come that seed that will deliver a deliberate and final blow to the enemy, the serpent. God deems a woman necessary for the story of redemption. And we know that this seed is Jesus. This theme of offspring carries through the entire Bible leading to the moment where Jesus would come into the world. When Abraham is called out, God says, I'm going to bless you with land, but I'm also going to bless you with seed, with offspring. And from your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. When he calls Isaac unto himself, he reiterates the promise, the seed to Jacob, the seed to David, King David, your offspring will always have a place, will always have a throne. To Isaiah, he reveals that the virgin will be with child. And Jesus comes into the scene. He is the seed he is the one that God said would deliver a deliberate blow. And, and I just want to just draw your attention to the reality. I love what 1 John says about Jesus. It says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. In all its manifestations, he comes to reverse the course of disease. He comes to resurrect the dead. He comes to redeem the sinner. How does he do that? The seed grows up to be a man. And the seed gives his life as a ransom for many. The seed, the seed then delivers a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. Though his heel is struck, he still rises again from the dead. And he reigns in victory. This is our Jesus. Come on, give him praise. He's so worthy. Hallelujah. Romans 5 then draws our attention to this seed. Because Adam, you need to know, is a type of Christ. And so where Adam failed, Christ did not. When he faced the temptation of the enemy, Jesus took it on the chin and he, took, he put the enemy in his place. Amen? So every temptation on, in those 40 days that he spent in, in, the, in the wilderness, he bore that and took it on and took it on and took it on and did not bow to the enemy. Though he promised, though he, he, he gave lots of reasons, though he called God's word to question, though he minimized the consequences, Jesus did not bow to the enemy. He stood as the one who is the victor. He stood as the one who is the rightful one to the throne. He stood as the authority. This is our Jesus and we bless his holy name. It says in Genesis in Romans 5, 12 through 14, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, how did sin come into the world? And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin 
indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then skip down to Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The seed. It's the seed. Jesus. Jesus. Better than Adam. The second Adam who came to destroy the works of the devil succeeded. And brings about your and my redemption, our freedom. Though we're in this corrupt world, though we're in this, this deteriorating kind of season of life that we're, we're into. Jesus promised the restoration of all things. And most importantly, he promises your redemption. That you can be bought by his blood for God. As the Bible says in Revelations, he died for all. Right? Jesus purchased man for God from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. He redeems us. He redeems us. He sets us free. He's the one who heals our diseases. He's the one who reverses the curse. He's the one who redeems us and, and puts us on the path to eternal life with him. Jesus, we want to be with you. Jesus, we want all that this life entails here and now. We speak it over our community. The violence and the death that the enemy propagates in this land. Lord, we want your life instead. We want your life instead. We want your life instead. Raise us. Raise the sinner. Raise the one who is caught in the bounds of death and sin. Raise them up, Lord. And in this place, raise us up. The last thing he does in his tenderness, so he seeks for fellowship. He's concerned and broken by broken fellowship. He deems the woman essential for the salvation of all. Come on, ladies. Eve, Eve and all of you are so important. I mean, none of you are going to give birth to the Savior, but you're still important. <laughs> You're not less than. You're valued in the eyes of the Lord. Generations of worshipers of Jesus cannot come apart from you. <laughs> he does something very great to them, a gracious thing in Genesis 3.21, which I think is a foreshadowing of the cross. Genesis 3.20-21, he says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Something had to be sacrificed in order for their shame to be covered. This was a grace of the Lord. You should see his tenderness. Though, though the fall was a devastating blow to all of creation, the tenderness of God is a sweet call for us. And that's what we should respond to. He wants fellowship with you. 
He's always going to question, who told you? That's not what I said. That's not how I feel. He brought to us his salvation through his son, through the seed of the woman. And in his sacrifice, he covers our shame. Jesus covers your shame. So none of us have, we don't have to go hiding. He's well aware. But he has a covering for you. Will you accept it? He has a son, Jesus Christ. Will you accept him? If that's your desire today, I would invite you to, call, to talk to Pastor Jim, Pastor, Pastor me. <laughs> Way to ruin the moment. Pastor Jim or one of our elders, uh, Scott, Jason, uh, or I. You can talk to any of us. Also, if you are a friend of someone who's been telling you about Jesus here, talk to them. They know, they've experienced, and they can walk you through it, right? If you don't know, come together. We'll, we'll work it out. Amen? So I want to just pray over us. I forgot to share this. As I was praying, and now it won't be long. I know a lot of pastors say that, but I mean it. As I was praying this week, I was asking the Lord, what, what was your emotion? What were you feeling in, in all of this when the fall happened? Because I had never contemplated it in this way. I was, oh, this is the cause. The fall happened. Therefore, we all sin. Eve's to blame. Therefore, don't trust any women, right? <laughs> I've, some streams think that way. I'll just tell you that much. But, uh, but really, I was just uh, drawn to his emotion. And in the middle of worship, the Lord is just saying to me, and I began to sing, you are the one with the fire in your eyes. You are the one with the passion in your heart. And you are the one with the zeal about you. And that is what he is to you and to me. He's got fire in his eyes for you. He's got a passion in his heart for you. And he's got a zeal about him for you. So we thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your tenderness. Thank you for showing us the way and making the way. And thank you, Lord, for the many who will believe in you, Jesus Christ. We ask for salvation to take root in our lives. We ask for the fullness of Jesus Christ to be realized in us and through us. We ask, O oh Lord, for us to, to move back into relationship with you in every fragmented area of our lives. Will you continue to bring wholeness and peace to that? We love you. We love you. We love you. And we appreciate you, Jesus. We are grateful for all that you have done for us. We are grateful for the ways that you are patient with us. We're grateful for the ways that you call us back into the truth. So we welcome your truth and we welcome your character, your heart, and we embrace you, Lord. Thank you that you did not leave us in the trash can because we were too valuable. And thank you that you have many people who need to be called out of the trash can. Use us for your glory in that way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.